Welcome to episode 99 of Paper Talk, a series of podcast interviews featuring artists and professionals who are working in the fields of hand paper making and paper art. I'm Helen Hebert, and I run Helen Hebert Studio, a hand paper making studio in Colorado's Rocky Mountains, where I create artist books and installations. I also host the annual Red Cliff Paper Retreat and Paper Making Masterclasses here in the studio, and I run a membership program called The Paper Year and teach online classes about paper, light, and books, too. Find out more at HelenHebertStudio.com. I'm super excited to be approaching episode number 100 when I have a special treat for you. That will come out in just about three weeks. Today, I'm talking with Susan Ruptash, a Toronto washi artist who works in a variety of paper arts, including explorations of handmade heritage washi, printmaking, and bookmaking, building on a lifelong fascination with the properties and possibilities of paper. Ruptash's career as an architect has informed her explorations of structure, form, materiality, and process. She is a member of Propeller Art Gallery, Open Studio, and the Canadian Bookbinders and Book Artists Guild. Ruptash's work often includes embedded efforts that may not be readily apparent on viewing, but contribute to the finished piece through a curiosity and respect for the materials. For this reason, many of her works appear minimalist at first glance. Enjoy our conversation. Susan Ruptash, welcome to Paper Talk. I'm so excited to talk to you. Oh, hi, Helen. I am so excited to talk with you also. Yeah, yeah. We met through uh, some online classes you've taken with me, and I'm just uh, love your work. So uh, let's talk a little bit about how you got into art and any childhood influences. And I know you studied architecture and were an architect. So give me your background. Right. So I've, um, I come from a creative family, but I have had creative bug my whole life. But in particular, I have loved playing with paper since I was tiny. And I think a couple of my really important influences when I was quite young was my aunt, uh, my aunt Colleen, who at the time lived in California, very, very creative, highly creative person, uh, a weaver and all kinds of things, and a lover of color. But she gave me two incredible gifts um, when I was very young. And one was a beautiful pop-up origami book that had uh, instructions and and samples of origami that started a lifelong uh, mm. love of origami and paper folding. And another was a beautiful um, traditional Japanese paper craft uh, book uh, written by two professors uh, from in the 60s that that showed all kinds of interesting ways to use paper that I had never thought of. And, and it was my first exposure to tearing paper and um, my family got tired of these torn bits of paper that that littered throughout <laughs> the house. Um, but but it gave me a real fascination with paper from that very young age. And so really for my whole life, I've been dabbling with playing with paper, folding it, origami, making things, um, as you know, you know, the all kinds of other things. So it really started there. Right. And where did you grow up? I grew up in Ottawa, Canada. Okay. And where are you living yeah. today? Now I'm in Toronto, Canada. Okay. okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Cool. And let's, because you mentioned that book, I know it's one of your recommendations and we'll list it in the show notes, but um, that's new dimensions in papercraft. 
that book that's that your right. aunt gave you? Right. Yeah, it's yeah, New Dimensions in Papercraft. And the authors were Sadami Yamato and Kiyotada Ito. <laughs> right. And um I yeah, I've never seen that book. And I noticed it's still available, like yeah, old copies. Yeah. So I'm gonna order yeah. one. Yeah. It, it, it's very cool, but for me, it's um, and I just I treasure the fact that I still have it because so many of us, as our lives go on and we move around and do all yeah. kinds of fantastic things, we lose the stuff of our childhood because at a point in our lives it doesn't seem important. And mm-hmm. now that it's, I, I am so I feel so lucky that I have those those two books, very important books from my childhood, among others. Yeah. Right. Right. Okay. So, but, did you do any formal art training growing up, or? I, I did, did not, as you mentioned, okay. I, I, um, I, uh, I was creative. I'm also, uh, I love numbers. I love organization. I love math. Um, uh, I love kind of rigor and that shows up, uh, later when we talk about my, my artwork that shows mm-hmm. up as well, but, but that, that combination led me to, uh, um, architecture school. So I went to university for architecture thinking, I'll just see what this is about, I'm not sure about it. And it was it was a fascinating and very diverse education that exposed me to lots of those kinds of things and led me to a long career as an architect, actually. And so um, that's where I developed my love of um, uh, structure and, and the importance of light and space and proportion and things like that. So um, throughout most of my life, I wasn't pursuing art in a very heavy way because I simply didn't have time it was always in me and it was always this gnawing at me to do more of it but I had an amazing career as an architect that I loved and so um so I I ended up uh pursuing that and and I would say dabbling with paper for most of my life Uh uh-huh cool well I yeah I wanted to share that I also loved math and art and I thought I would become an architect. Um, I think it was inspired my parents remodeled when I was a teenager and I was fascinated with the model that this architect brought over to our house that he built and uh, I love that. I loved building models for different things, not houses necessarily, but and drawing houses and but I didn't go in that direction. I did intern so, for an architect after uh, my freshman year in college. Um, so it's interesting. We both had that balance yeah. early on. And, and yeah. then the, the, I think we took the two different yeah, paths. Right. So, yeah, just tell me a little bit about what you did uh, in your career as an architect. Well, um, I, I, I started out, uh, you know, uh, just working for a number of different firms, smaller mm-hmm. firms and medium sized firms to try and get a sense of, of what I really where I really wanted to land. And I think I realized fairly early on that my real calling was in organizing things and managing things. So I moved uh, fairly quickly into managing fairly large projects Mm -hmm. rather than working in the smaller, more detailed areas of it. And then um, uh, I was with uh, the same firm in Toronto, BDP Quadrangle, for 29 years um, and uh, had the most amazing career there. And I think the two things I was most proud of was um, developing a real expertise and in fact setting up a separate company to deal with uh, accessible design and inclusive design because from the very beginning I didn't understand why we were we as architects and city builders were building so many things that excluded so many people and I wanted mm-hmm. to really work hard to to change that and that but the other thing is that the last nine years of my career I was managing principal of the firm and that was um, a real um, 
honor for me to be able to mm-hmm. take on that level of of uh, um, of of work and to be able to reinvent myself throughout my career was was really wonderful. Yeah, yeah. And so then you've retired from being an architect. I have, I have. Yeah. I retired uh, almost four years ago. I loved okay. my job. I was, it was a career of my dreams. But as I mentioned, this this thing had been gnawing inside me, and it was growing. I had, I was starting to try and really do more uh, creative work, um, printmaking, bookmaking, playing with paper, and it was frustrating for me that I didn't really have the time, or more importantly, the energy to to really pursue it. And I thought, well, if if I if I really want to do this, now's the time. So I I retired and. I did consult back to the firm on a contract basis for a little while, but I'm now fully retired and uh, I could not be happier. It's so um, exciting for me to be able to really devote myself more to to this to playing with paper. Yeah. So uh, how did you start? What did you do first? Well, uh, I started... Um, just playing like I really uh, my even my practice today is really experimental really kind of research based I like to research stuff but I just go play I have a like like most paper lovers I have a good supply of all kinds of interesting papers and so I would just spend time playing with the paper um and then a couple of things happened along the way I had um uh just stumbled upon because um uh, well, I know we'll talk about washi more, but I had stumbled into learning more about Japanese paper and washi, and I had I had acquired some, and I, I really loved it. And um, Propeller Art Gallery in Toronto had a juried exhibition called The Promise of Sekishu, where you had to submit pieces using only this one kind of heritage washi, Sekishu. And I said to myself, if I don't submit to this, then 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 what am I doing? And so I submitted a few pieces to that, and I was really honoured to have them accepted in the show and in fact one of them got an honorable mention and that really gave me the the it's not so much confidence I think I've always had a confidence Mm -hmm. to do what I do but it gave me a push to say okay you can do this and so that really got me head head first into all of this right and let's uh tell me what heritage washi means so what washi is simply the Japanese word for paper uh, um uh but uh uh, over the, and um, traditionally, washi was thought to be uh, handmade using traditional techniques and using Japanese materials. But over time, the term washi got kind of used more broadly to mean all kinds of of Japanese paper, and even some people use it to mean handmade paper that's not necessarily Japanese. So um, uh, Nancy Jacoby from the Japanese Paper Place. Um, uh, has uh, kind of coined the term some years ago, heritage washi, and it is meant to uh, depict the washi, the true traditional washi that is made, handmade, made in Japan, made with Japanese materials using the traditional techniques, no chemicals, no bleaches, um, and and so it's sort of the really the really the finest of the of the handmade washis and the ones that are um, using the traditional materials. Right, right. Okay. And um, when did you discover uh, the Japanese paper place? Because you live in Toronto, where it is. I, I, I do live in Toronto. And I have to say that um, I'm not, I'm one of many, many artists who is exploring washi the way we are because of the Japanese paper mm-hmm. place and because of being so lucky to have it in, in our city. 
So um, there's a there's actually one of their retail outlets in Toronto called the Paper Place uh, that carries a lot of their washi papers, and it's the kind of place that any paper lover ends up. Um, I, I was fond of saying I'd go there and and fondle the 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 fine papers until they kicked me out. You know, going through their sample books and dreaming and deciding. You know, when I was working on a project. And so through them, I learned about the Japanese paper place, which is the wholesaler, but also has um, um, the Japanese paper place is celebrating their 40th anniversary this fall. Uh, and their founder, Nancy Jacoby, is a is a just a wealth of knowledge of washi and the, the traditional Japanese paper making families. And she and the staff at uh, the Japanese paper place, many of them have been there over 30 years, um, mm. share that knowledge and that love. So. Um, uh, they're an amazing resource uh, to go to to, to uh, understand what washi is available and what it might do. So uh, um, it was just uh, it was just sort of an evolution of my diving deeper into paper in Toronto that led me to them. Right, right. And um, so uh, I want to hear a little bit more about Propeller Art Gallery too, because you mentioned you answered that call for works and participated in that show, but I know you're still connected with them. And I think they're in a membership gallery. Yeah, that's correct. So propeller art gallery in Toronto is celebrating its 26th year actually, which, uh, and it's a, it's a member run gallery. So it is a, a artist run. So it's run by the artist members. We do have a, a part-time uh, director um, but it's but most of the direction of the gallery, the board and and many, many hours of volunteer work come from the artist members. And so after I answered that call for the promise of Sakishu, I did know some other people who were members um, and I was encouraged to uh, um, uh, submit myself as a, as a member. And I was really uh, pleased to be accepted as a member. So I became a member of the gallery and and through them. Uh, have uh, I had my first solo show last fall at Propeller, and I've submitted to many of the group shows over the years, and I'm now on the board. So, uh, um, really, a wonderful group of artists. So, just um, uh, you know, making art can be a fairly solitary uh, adventure, and so being um, connected with a group of kind of like-minded people uh, with the same. Um, kind of drive is 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 a real privilege and just it's got such a history in Toronto in the West Queen West art district um and and to be to be part of uh seeing that it continues um its life after 26 years is wonderful it was founded by a group of art students from the local um uh OCADU the Ontario College oh, of Art and yeah. Design University um who were who were graduating and were looking for a place to show their work so it had some it had a kind of great um, kind of grassroots beginning. So I'm really pleased to be a part of it continuing. Yeah. Is there something that is connecting aside from being artists, obviously <laughs> uh, the work that's shown there or uh, there's quite, no, 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 yeah. there's quite a diversity mm -hmm. of, of art. So um, mm -hmm. in, in um, reviewing people for potential membership, there's certainly, um, the the committee will be looking at a certain quality of art and a certain um, dedication to art and uh, um, and, a, and an approach, a professional approach, I would say. But other than that, there's there's um, uh, there's all different kinds of art represented. Right. Okay. Yeah. Um, I was looking at uh, your work online, and I 
I noticed this thing that you said that I wanted to touch on. Um, I believe this was your recent show there. The works in raw material showcase the inherent and hidden qualities of Japanese washi through minimal intervention. So I want to talk about your work, but I, yeah, I wondered whether that related to architecture at all too. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. It, it it absolutely does. As I mentioned earlier, um, um, good architecture um, has restraint. It doesn't go too far. It, mm-hmm. it thinks about the purity of the structure, the purity, it, it examines the materials and decides what that material, how it should be used to showcase it, but not not overdo it. Um, we all know the the importance of light when we walk into a space that has gorgeous light and 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 uh, views and things like that. Um, text the importance of texture and color. But for me, um, it, it, my taste in architecture was always leaning towards subtlety, like less, not not too much, like very subtle color changes or texture changes was always what appealed to me. Mm-hmm. And so all of those things that I just mentioned come into my work with washi. And the more I have worked with heritage washi, particular, my favorite washi to work with now are, are the nat, are very thin, very light, natural colored heritage washi. Um, and so uh, you have, it's kind of like the desert. You have to get in close and look to see what, to see the beauty there, the, they're these beautiful colors, but, um, which at first glance, if you looked at 10 heritage washies, they're k- kind of all the same color, but you put them side by side or hold them up to the light, they're completely different. And the more you work with them, the more you appreciate that. Um, uh, I think the, the thing that most people don't realize is how strong this heritage washi is. Mm-hmm. So because of the way it's made, most of the washi that I like is using the Kozo fiber from the mulberry plant. Um, and it has very long fibers and, and it makes the paper when it's made in these uh, um, traditional ways from from real heritage master washi makers, it has incredible strength. And so, one of the things I'm trying to do is how do I how do I in my work um, reflect that strength in a piece of paper? How do I show people that or make a hint that this is actually a really strong thing? And then, of course, the translucency lends itself beautifully to layering and to the use of light. Um, and of course, one of the workshops I did with you, Helen, was paper and light, and and of course, exploring how backlighting and lighting, um, translucent and layered uh, paper, can can really um, make it more wonderful. And then uh, I mentioned the Kozo fibers, and so uh, a lot of the work that I'm doing is I tear the washi rather than cut it, and I'm trying to tear it in such a way that those fibers are really show- pulled out and expressed. Mm-hmm. So again, I'm trying to show people. Um, you might not have noticed the wa- the fibers in this washi, but here they are. Now you can see them. So there's a lot of this. Um, uh, I think a lot about it in my work, but I say to people when it, when it's sitting on the wall, you might look at it and go, "Well, she didn't do that much to it." But there's a lot in there, and I'm trying I'm trying to really draw people in closer to the washi for them to see these some of these qualities that I see in it. Yeah, that's beautiful. And um, there's a wonderful video uh, that we'll link to that uh, the camera is going right up to the edges of the paper and showing exactly what you're uh, talking about. It's interesting to think about how someone might approach something and not even get what you're trying to do. 
Um, yeah. So the video, I, I noticed that right away. Um, and, uh, but just being in the presence of that beautiful paper. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So it, let go ahead. It, it is a real, I, 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 when you say in the presence of that beautiful paper, I feel a real privilege and respect whenever I'm working with washi, when I pull out a, a, a new sheet of washi to work with or whatever I do, I feel that. Um, and luckily I don't, I don't, uh, I've heard of other, a lot of other artists who have beautiful washi at home. They say, but I can't touch it. It's like, it's, right. it's, I don't, I'm they sort of like, I'm not worthy to touch it. Um, and, uh, and I, I'm really glad that I've, I, I don't feel that way at all. I feel if I can, um, help the washi express itself a little bit more and get it out there where people can see it that I'm actually um, uh, so I'm pretty bold with what I do to it I don't mind um, get it really getting in there <laughs> yeah and uh, I was I've been curious as you've been talking about um, what your paper stash is like like do you have just a lot of paper so you have something to go to when you have an idea or do you have an idea and then you go buy that paper or is there <laughs> That's a great any question. Rhyme or reason? The, an the answer to both the answer is yes and yes. So okay. I do have a I don't have a huge stash, but I have a very good stash. And yeah. one of the things I've um, been great about over um, as I've developed more of a stash is I make sure and keep a sample of um, whenever I can of of any any washi that I'm working with. So that when I'm trying to think about what washi I might want to use, I have a I have these sample books that I can go to and 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 look at them. Um, and I'm very uh, because of I have a huge respect for the washi and the washi makers. I'm I I know the I know which washi I'm using. I know the I know the qualities of it. I know what fiber it's been made from and things like that. So um, I I will often do that, but I have certainly have my favorites, and I'm getting to know certain washies well enough that uh if i'm thinking of a project i go you know what this washi would be great for it but why i'm laughing is it's it's amazing how many times i'm in the middle of a project and i end up having to go to the japanese paper place and get some more washi because <laughs> it is what i have isn't quite right for what for what i'm about to do so it's it's a little bit of each for sure <laughs> yeah and i admire that you make those sample books because oh my gosh my paper collection is a mess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and yeah, knowing yeah, I think we what all, you used yeah. and remembering yeah. Yeah. and oh gosh. Yeah. 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 That's and that's part of my my honoring of the washi is I make sure that in all my pieces, um, that uh the you know the the traditional thing for a piece of art is the me you know, what medium is it and and I don't say washi. I'll have this long-winded right. list of of exactly what washi is in there and things like that. And I want to make sure and and always um, uh, recognize the paper, the washi makers that made that beautiful paper. Yeah, that's wonderful. And I did want to mention to listeners that um, Susan shared five different of her favorites that we'll list with these names that she's saying that are hard to maybe <laughs> decipher. Um, so we'll list those in the show notes as well. Hey, listeners, let's take a little break here. And I want to let you know that my new book, The Art of Papercraft, is now out in the world. The book offers a rich variety of projects that will delight crafters, artists, and designers alike, including paper votive lights, pop-up cards, folded paper gift boxes and envelopes, woven paper wall hangings, miniature one-sheet books, and much more.
If you'd like an autographed copy, you can order that directly from me at HelenHebertStudio.com. And if the autograph doesn't matter to you, the book is available wherever fine books are sold. It's also available on Kindle. And by the way, my book, Paper Making with Garden Plants and Common Weeds, has also just been released on Kindle. And my other papermaking book, The Papermaker's Companion, has been available on Kindle for a couple of years. Now back to our conversation. Well, let's talk about a couple of pieces that you've made. And I don't have a particular one. You pick one and talk about the properties of the paper that you were trying to uh, show off. Okay. Um, I'll, I'll talk about one from the recent show, which is the piece that got probably the most attention. And it wasn't, I I, uh, I guess I shouldn't be surprised about that, but it's the one called 2292. So it is, um, it is the second in a series that I'm making that are, um, I call them calend- roughly calendars. So uh, it is a, um, it is a recognition of the past year. So this piece is a recognition of the year 2021. Mm. And this uh, idea came to me during the pandemic when I heard so many people saying, oh, every day's the same. And I can't remember what I did last Tuesday. And was that Wednesday or Tuesday? And at the same time, I was exploring this this theme of respect in my work because of my respect for the washi. And, 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 and I thought, doesn't every day deserve recognition? Every day's a little bit different, even if they seem the same. Every day had something good about it, even if it didn't, you know. And so I wanted to do a piece that recognized, um, gave recognition to every day of the year. So this piece, 2292, has um, 365 discs, um, one for each day of the year. And uh, the other, another theme in this piece is repetition. I've grown to enjoy repetition in my work because um uh, again, I've used um, the same washi, the same technique on every th- every one of these pieces, which is a wet tearing technique. I took a wet uh, pen, uh, did a little circle of water on the washi, let it relax a bit and carefully tore it to express the fibers. Um, and I did that the same process on the same paper, but every one of them is different because the washi is handmade. Uh, I'm imperfect. Uh, I did them on different days. And so um, they're the same and yet they're not. And then I I, um, I wanted to express them as minimally as possible. So I strung them together on very light linen thread, no glue, just tiny knots um, and, and on 12 strings. So one for each art, kind of artificial month of the year mm-hmm. um, and then strung them as a mobile. So the whole piece just moves. You just look at it. It's so light. You just look at it and it moves. And it's, you would think it would the rigor and the repetition would make it hard, but it's um, it's it's a very very soft piece. I used um, uh, one of the heritage washi Sekishu Banchi Tsuru, um, it, which is one of the ones on the list, um, because it's a beautiful, strong, uh, translucent washi. And to make it look really, I wanted to express the softness of it, so I crumpled the entire sheet, just hand, just dry crumpled it and then flattened it back out with my hand a few times before I made the piece so that the, the pieces actually have this softness to it that that really express the fibers of it. So that, um, uh, and like like a lot of the pieces I do, the shadows that it creates on the wall are almost as nice as the mm. art piece itself because of the, because of the translucency of it. So, so that's one of uh, that piece. 
I think people were drawn to it because of its size and its softness and the fact that it was moving. And then when I when they heard the story about it being connected to as a calendar, I think that that really fascinated people. And then the, the title of it, 2292, at first I called, I thought I didn't want, just want to call it 2021. That was right. kind of boring. So um, I calculated the circumference of each disc because to me, it's about the, all about the fibers. So how many linear inches of fiber are in this ah. piece? So I calculated the circumference of one of the discs and multiplied it times 365. And that's 2,292 lineal inches of fiber. So that's just, that's just to amuse me. My titles amuse me. That's where they come from. <laughs> yeah. And I'm curious just about the, the daily process. So you tore one a day? Is that how you did it? No, or did you? No, okay, I you didn't. made it so as a piece. I, I okay. didn't. I didn't. Yeah. So I know, I, I think I was inspired. I knew I learned of people who do things every day. And if, in fact, yeah, Weave Through Winter was was one of the mm -hmm. workshops that I did with you, where there's a discipline of doing something every day, which is which is uh, very fascinating to me, but I knew it wouldn't, I didn't want it to become um, an effort like, oh, I got to have mm -hmm. to do my disc for today. So so I don't do them one a day. I do okay. I do one for each day, but I do them in, in batches. Yeah. 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 Um, I love the daily practice and I do weave through winter every year. But other than that, I don't really have a, <laughs> a daily practice uh, that I could label. But well, I was thinking what popped into my mind, because there's so many different kinds of daily practices, was this writer that I follow, Matthew Dix. And he has something called homework for life. And you were talking about the importance of every day. And so every day, because he's a writer, he has this Excel spreadsheet that he writes a few things in that could become potential stories. And it's a great, it's really interesting because he can go search the spreadsheet. He's been doing this for years to jog his memory or to find a theme, to combine a few of these little st story ideas. And I just, I love it. I'd love yeah. to do that myself, but I just haven't yeah. started. But um, <laughs> I'm sure uh, you're the same that um, when I'm working, somebody once asked me about our uh, artist block and I just laughed. I said, when I'm working on a piece, I come up with so many ideas for how I could do that piece differently yeah. and 20 more ideas for new pieces. And my, my struggle is to finish that piece before I jump to the next one. So I've learned, I have learned to write those down, just yeah. ideas, mm -hmm. but that would be great to do one every day, have an idea, you know, an idea for an art project every day, because I could certainly could come up with one. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Capturing yeah. it is another yeah. thing, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah for yeah. me, it's more, if it keeps coming back, then I know yeah. I need to do it. But yeah, there's so many ways. Um, I love what you said about the softness that drew people in. And I was going back to my own uh, very early interest in paper, which was I got to go to Japan when I was 22 or 23 and not paper related, just with my family. And we stayed in a traditional inn and it was filled with tatami mats and shoji screens and the light coming through those that those paper covered shoji screens just struck me and yeah maybe it's my interest in architecture i don't know but <laughs> um let's talk about another piece and i know you've 
uh, again, you can pick the piece, but I know you've explored some of these other techniques like uh, using konyaku. You mentioned the crumpling, but I know you use it in combination with konyaku sometimes. And then kakishibu, which is the treaty, the persimmon juice. Um, is there a piece you can we can talk about or just the sure. process? You also have yeah. a wonderful, I want to mention your blog where you you uh you you'll show a piece and then you write about the process. So it's a wonderful yeah. resource and we'll link to that too. Yeah, okay, thanks. Well, um uh, for 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 Kakishibu, I guess one I'll talk about the piece called Unspun because it it again I think has a number of uh covers a number of themes that repeat in my work. Um uh, unspun is made from Inchu Mitsumata, which is a different fiber. And it's, um, I, as I mentioned, it's almost all of my work is using Kozo. So it's interesting that to use a different, um, a different fiber and a different paper. Inchu Mitsumata is a, just a gorgeous heritage washi. Um, and the reason this, the reason I chose Inchu, Inchu Mitsumata for this piece is that it is one of the washis that is traditionally used to make kami ito, which is paper thread. Mm -hmm. So that's traditionally made in Japan, where um, where washi is cut into very, very, very fine um, slices um, and spun into paper thread, and then um, most traditionally then woven into paper cloth called shifu. And I was interest very interested in that. So I had um, explored uh, making some kami ito, and I made some myself. Not not anywhere to the level that the master uh, shifu makers are making it, but just to understand the process. And so uh, this piece unspun. Then I took a full sheet of inchu mitsumata, and I cut it in the same manner that you would cut for kami ito, which is sort of alternating slices. So that um, so that the entire sheet turns into one long strip. So, um, but I cut it much coarser than you would for uh, for kami ito, and then I spun it just by hand. I spun it into a tight, tight cord, and I dyed it in kakishibu. So kakishibu is a traditional uh, tannin uh, used in Japan for making uh, paper uh, more insect proof and waterproof. So it was traditionally used to um, make umbrellas and make all kinds of things and and uh, seat cushions. Um, it's made from uh, fermented unripe persimmons, which is, uh, I just love using things like that. And it makes a beautiful, deep uh, reddish brown dye. And the thing that fascinated me to it is the color changes over time as the oxidation and the sunlight affect it for at least a year. And I love doing processes that I don't have full control over. So you would dye it a certain color and it'll keep changing. So you don't really mm -hmm. control it. So again, that that was my first uh, draw to it. So now, anyway, now I, I want to ask you where <laughs> where you get the persimmon and in what form? So um, I buy kakishibu comes in liquid form and in powder form. And in North America, it's most traditionally comes in powder form. And I get mine uh, uh, at the Japanese paper place. And in the States, um, Washi Arts, which is a fantastic store run by uh, Linda Marshall, who is a wealth of knowledge on these things, um, it also would sell it. So right. it comes in a powder okay. form and then you just mix it up with some distilled water and and uh, and use it. And okay. you don't uh, you don't affect you don't make it darker by how you mix it, you mix it always the same, you make it darker by applying successive layers and also through through time. Mm. So I've used it on a number of a number of my pieces, I love using it. 
So for this piece, after I wove it into or spun it into paper cord, I um, I submerged it in kakishibu several times, and then I let it dry completely, um, and then I un I unspun it. So then I flattened it back out, which uh, it, it sticks together, but not um, not if, if you work at it carefully, you can draw it back apart. So I took it back apart and kind of reformed it back into a semblance of its original sheet. So this was um, an exploration uh, that I've done in other pieces. Uh, a couple of things. I like to use the entire a full sheet of washi wherever I can. In my early work, I would... Um, use my architecture training in proportion to say, you know, that sheet should be a little longer and narrower. That proportion isn't quite right. But now I'm like, the washi maker had a reason for making the sheet that size. And I'm not going to question that. So I, as much as possible, I try to use the entire sheet. So um, this, this is certainly, this was one example of that. So then I kind of spread it back out in a semblance of, of the original sheet um, and, 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 and there it is. And then the other theme I think I hinted at the beginning was the making and un the doing and undoing. Yeah. I like um, I like that where you do something and then you undo it. But of course, it's not back. To, it's doesn't it's not back to where it was. Right. But uh, I, um, I'm fascinated with I'm, fa I'm as fascinated with process as I am with material. So I that it just struck me to make something and then and then unmake it and see what happened. And so that that's that's where that one came from. Yeah, uh, it's beautiful, and we'll uh, put a we'll put a photo in the show notes yeah. of that piece too. Do you want uh, me to talk a bit about a konyaku piece, or is that <laughs> as you know, I can uh, go on and on? <laughs> yes, I do, but I wanted to mention to listeners who are interested in shifu and kami ito. There's a project in my new book, The Art of Papercraft, which was contributed by Susan Bird, who spent a couple of years with a Japanese master mastering this craft and um it's a really fascinating craft so if you're interested in that susan bird also wrote a book about the craft and her time in japan uh, which is available from the legacy press so yeah yeah tell me yeah. what konyaku is and then uh talk let's talk okay. about a piece so uh konyaku is another traditional uh japanese technique it is a starch that's made from the root of a plant called the voodoo lily <laughs> Um, and it's um, it was traditionally used to make washi um, uh, stronger and more water resistant. Um, and when when used in a certain way, it it actually um, or or even sizing most of the heritage washi is unsized. Um, and so some artists, depending what they're wanting to do to it, want to kind of add a certain type of sizing. So konyaku can also act as a sizing. So again, it um, it comes in a powder form from the same sources um, and is mixed with water. Um, and I, of course, I've uh, I've worked with you, Helen, in, um, on making it in one of your workshops. And there's different there are different ways to mix it, but it does kind of come to a sort of a, a loose gel form mm -hmm. that can then be painted painted on um, and then kneaded. The, the the best the best way to use konyaku is to paint it thinly onto washi. And then um, the paper's folded into a ball and, and kneaded and crumpled, and that works the washi right into the fibers. And then the paper's flattened back out and left to dry, and, and multiple coats can be used. So um, my one of my pieces from my recent show is called Five, um, and it's using um, Oguni Snow Bleach 26 gram, which is um, a gorgeous heritage washi. Um, and 
of course, I was attracted to the name of it, Snow Bleach, to learn that um, uh, in the, the process of making this particular washi, the, the washi makers take the kozo fibers and lie, lie them out on the snow in the winter, which is when they're gathering the washi. And the, the sun and the snow help to naturally bleach bleach the kozo to make this very, very kind of quite pure white washi. And, it, and it's just a beautiful washi. So um, I was wanting, I was, I, I love using cognac. Um, uh, one of the things I do with it is work it into these very fine papers. And then while they're still wet, you can, you can sort of um, mount it, pile them up and mountain them up. And, and it's, it's a uh, very, it's, uh, it doesn't stick well when it's wet. It's sort of very wet, but if you can get it in a certain form and let it dry, then it gives just enough structure to the, to the, it's sort of like a textural memory. So it gives a, it lets the paper stay in this form. So this piece five uh, used five different full sheets of um, the Oguni snow bleached. And I put a very, a piece of very fine copper wire around the perimeter um, of, of the washi uh, and pasted that in just to give it a little bit of structure to hold, uh -huh. coated it with konyaku and then bunched it up and let it dry. And what I was trying to express here is this is one of the ways that I try to express strength. So when I think of strong materials, you think of lava and rocks and mountains. And so trying to bring the, this kind of rock lava like form to the washi was my way of expressing the strength of it in this piece. Beautiful. Um, I was just struck by or a question in listening to you talk about that, which is, the permanence of paper and your pieces are, um, they hang on the wall or hang in space. And I'm sure people ask you about this <laughs> who are interested in collecting your work. I wonder what you say. Uh, well, you know, it, about uh, dust and yeah. fragility and all of that. Yeah. Yeah. In terms of, uh, you know, in terms of fragility, um, the, any any for starters, any piece coated with konyaku or kakishibu um, has um, extra sort of extra is less fragile mm -hmm. and far more dust resistant. But washi somehow seems to be somewhat dust resistant. I really do find that. I have pieces hanging in my own home that are uncoated, just just washi. They do seem to be dust resistant. Um, uh, in terms of fragility, like it's. I guess I, I part part of my my first part of the answer is I don't I, I make I make what I make yeah <laughs> I, I I'm not yeah. I don't want to stop making what I'm making um, and I don't I don't worry about that and I don't want to kind of be flippant about that but the other thing is it's I think washi is not nearly as fragile as people realize um, and it would it, hanging by itself on the wall if it if nothing happens to it, I have no problem with it. And in fact, I'm getting bolder and bolder with like, I'm using very light linen thread um, to hang a lot of these pieces. Um, I'm going with lighter and lighter kind of connectors for it because mm -hmm. it, it just, it, it doesn't seem to be an issue. So um, it, it, it could be dust, you know, th these pieces could, could be dusted. If you were careful, you could take a, a sort of a low volume air, and you know, blow some low vo volume air over it and all that. But it's, um, I guess, I just, I'm, I, 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 I just feel the need to make the pieces that I'm making. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I really respect that, and I, um, I've had that same question over the years, and 
I, I made lights for a while, you know, and there was all the questions about fireproofing. And I just really did not want to be coating my papers with some chemical, you know, yeah. um, to make it fire resistant. And there are mm-hmm. other ways just keeping the light far enough away from the paper or any material for that matter. Um, so, yeah, I love that. Um, let's go back to the daily practice idea. And I just want to know, do you have, uh, what's your work method? Are you, do you work towards projects and shows or do you do something daily in, in the studio? I, I don't, I don't do something daily, okay. um, but I do work. I do. I, I work best towards projects and shows. So, um, uh, that sort of gives me a focus to do things. But for instance, I just, as you know, just had an exhibition. Um, and so right now I've shifted to smaller works. So I'm doing a bunch of smaller works right now. I'm working on some books, some uh, small, very small pieces and some lamps. So um, it's sort of I'm um, taking a break from the big pieces and and shifting down to, to, to changing the scale. So doing um, smaller pieces um and that are kind of a quicker turnaround too so i i kind of shift and then I've, as i mentioned i've got a solo show in um or maybe i didn't i've got a, a solo show next march in, at propeller art gallery so um as you know i'm just taking a break for these small pieces and then i'm and then i'm going to be very focused on that so um uh, that works best for me i think because of the years that i spent what i call dabbling um, the, when you're dabbling, there comes a point where you go, why, why am I making this? I'm making, I made another cool thing and I show a few people and they go, oh, that's beautiful. And then I wonder where I'm going to store it. And yeah. so that, that sort of purpose. Um, um, so uh, knowing that I'm going to be exhibiting something or submitting it for a show uh, gives me a real drive to do, to keep, to keep going. So that, that really helps me. Right. Yeah. And since you mentioned storage, I'm sure you sell some of your pieces, but some you must end up having to store. I know they're lightweight and probably <laughs> collapse down. And do you have a system, or is it piece by piece? I, 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 the reason that people can't see me shaking my head and laughing, um, and uh, I, I've got this urge to make to go bigger. So this the works in my recent show were bigger than I've worked before. And I want to go even bigger. I'm really loving big work. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I joke about spending um, more time trying to figure out how to transport these pieces and how to store them than I do making them. Right. Some of them are, are that case. So, um, but I, I try to make that a positive thing. As I mentioned, I've always liked making things. So coming up with, um, uh, like one of the pieces in the recent show is called tree skins. It's three big, like eight foot long tubes of just fine washi on linen and thread that um, was washi that I had wrapped around tree trunks and coated with konyaku till it was just a little bit stiff and then peeled it off. So those are completely floppy on their own. So mm-hmm. coming up with a tube system to put inside them and how do I transport them and things like that. So transporting and storage is part of part of the um, the game of for me of it. So it is um, it is it can be a challenge figuring out where to, where to put them. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I remember making a piece called Mother Tree and even uh well, I think I made it and then I realized it was going to travel and so I I had this armature that I had to remake for travel and I had it made so it 
broke in half so that it could fit into a reasonable size crate. And yeah, there are all these things to think about that you're faced with when you make large work. Yeah. Cool. Um, So you have a lot of recommendations and I didn't want to miss any because they're really great. We've touched on some of them, Um, but uh, you had another book, which I want to talk about a little bit. Washi, The World of Japanese Paper by Suki Hughes. And I have to tell you that I moved to New York City after college, and then I went on that trip to Japan maybe a year later. That was where I was like, this is it. I want to learn how to make paper. I thought I would go back to Japan and learn there. I had no idea. ended up finding a place in New York City. But in between there, after I'd gone to Japan and before I found a job in New York, I... I don't know how I heard about that book, but I did. And this was before the internet in this late eighties. I remember going like to some little bookstore upstairs. It wasn't any place I stumbled across. I knew, you know, someone had told me about it, probably called there, found out they had this book. It was a hundred dollars, which was like so much (laughs) money to me back then. And I bought it because I knew this is what I wanted to do. So yeah, tell me a little bit about the book. And yeah, same, same. So this was uh, I I can't remember when I got it, but it um, you had asked how how did I shift from just a love of paper to a love of washi? And mm-hmm. I think discovering this book was a big big part of it. So it was at a time when I was starting to be uh, I was aware of washi and starting to um, have a little bit and wanted to know more. And I same thing I stumbled on it just. Um, I mentioned before, I like to do research on things and Mm -hmm. trying to, I try to dig deep, like not just this, I try to find like obscure uh, discussions about things that I'm interested in. And somewhere along the way, I found a reference to this book and I found it on a, on a, on a secondhand site um, and and I bought it. And same thing. I can't remember what I paid for it. I remember thinking like, Oh boy, that's quite a bit. And my so glad that I bought it because it's incredible um, like talk about respect, like that's probably one of the big places that I first learned about the respect, but the, the stories about the washing making families and the, yeah. the, wash, the paper making villages and the different fibers and the, pro- the process, like it's got, su- it's such a wealth of information by someone who truly understood and loved and, and really got deep into, into how, how this amazing, material has been made and continues to today. And and what's both interesting and scary to me is the book isn't that old, but the number of um, heritage washi maker families that are mentioned in the book that are no longer making washi. So they, you know, it, it's, uh, it's a real um, uh, testament to, to kind of how, how the art can is disappearing in some ways, but yeah, it's a, it's a, it's, it's an amazing book. Yeah, and we'll link to that in the show notes. And Suki Hughes, the author, I think this is the story. I might have it a little twisted, but she was in Japan in the 70s. I think this came out in the late 70s. And uh, her husband at the time was over there, and she knew she was going to be there for something like two years. So she came up with a project for herself. And I don't remember how it was, how paper came to be, but she traveled around and interviewed all of these paper makers and really got into the um, 
yeah, the different surface treatments and the different methods of making. And it's not really a how-to book, although there's a lot of information in there that you you could glean from reading it. Um, yeah, wonderful book. Great. Yeah. I think that's where I first learned, first heard of both Konyaku and Kakishibu. So it's mm-hmm. traditional, as, as traditional techniques, that's where I first read about them. And then I researched further, you know, to, to be able to take it a little further. Right, right, yeah, right, yeah. And then, uh, yeah, we've already talked about the Japanese paper place and Washi Arts, which is in Washington State. Uh, wonderful paper resources, and we'll list we'll list all of those. And then you alluded to the water pen and the cutting knife, but tell me a little bit about those again. Yeah, so so much as I love, um, uh, you know my sort of broad range of working with paper that cutting paper, um, you know, particularly paper weaving and, and, and I've learned some great cutting techniques from you, Helen. So there's lots of places where you want to cut paper, but with most of the washi I'm working with, I do not cut it. I tear it. And that's because um, that's to express those fibers. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, the Sakura water brush is one of the brands. Um, Pentel also makes one that I use. And it's basically like a little plastic fountain pen that you fill with distilled water. And then they've got different shapes of nibs that you can paint a very fine line of water onto the washi, uh, let it, let it rest a little bit and then tear it. Um, so that's one way. But the other one is, uh, I've got a Kartapura slitting knife, which is a German paper slitting knife that, um, that, I, and I first heard or first saw a slitting knife being used by a bookbinder years ago. Um, mm-hmm. and it's a way to cut paper down, um, by taking a piece of paper, folding it, um, um, creasing with a, fo- a bone folder, and then use the, the paper slitting knife in a certain kind of, um, method to slit the paper open. And it's both, um, it's it's much more satisfying way to cut paper than using a knife and a, and a ruler. It's quicker because you don't have to get certain things out. And it leaves just the slightest, it doesn't really leave like a decal, decal type or fiber edge, but it does leave a slight fiber edge to it. So it gives it a little bit more softness. And one of the things I like about it was I mentioned um, using the whole sheet of paper. And that's another thing I learned from Japanese bookbinding techniques is that a lot of the small Japanese notebooks, the size of the paper is determined, uh, the, the size of the pages in the book is determined by the size of the washi paper that's used because you don't want to waste paper. So you just keep folding it in half and half and half and half till you get the size you want. And so that method of cutting down a sheet works really well with a slitting knife. You fold it in half and slit it and fold it in half the other way and slit it and keep going. And so it's just a, it's a, it's a beautiful, um, uh, um, I think anyone who works with tools really appreciates beautiful tools in the, in this particular slitting knife. It's just a beautiful tool. And I get huge pleasure out of every time I use it for, for kind of a, a small, simple thing. Yeah, cool. Um, Okay, and I can't leave out paper weaving because I love paper weaving. And I think (laughs) in your recent show, you had a piece that's dimensional um, only because of the way it was suspended, maybe kind of curves around. Is there a big or is that? Oh, that that was in that was in raw material. Yeah. Okay. X. It's called X. (laughs) Um, And it is um, it's it's 
it's paper weaving. A lot of my weaving is quite fine, um, mm -hmm. but this one is is woven from quite wide pieces. So it's made from Mariki Kozo, which is a beautiful, it's not a heritage washi, but it's a, a heavier washi. And it's nice to use when you want a heavier washi. And it takes kakishibu beautifully. So I took two full sheets of Mariki Kozo and coated them with multiple coats of kakishibu to give that beautiful brown burnish color. And then I, I cut it in and I left the edges untreated, which I often do to kind of express mm. the, the natural paper. Mm. And then I cut it into pretty wide strips and just wove it together in a very simple weaving. And and the, the fun story about that one is I had intended for it to sit flat on the wall in a cross shape. So I, I you know, I finished the piece and then I kind of put it up on the wall to have a look at it. And it just looked lumbering to me. I just, I didn't like it. So I was mm -hmm. like, oh no. So I put it away. And then I thought, okay, I got to figure out what to do with this piece. So I took it out again and I picked it up by one of its corners to move it. And it, and it immediately kind uh. of um, curled over into this beautiful kind of organic shape. And uh. I thought, oh, it's, it's telling, it, it finally told right. me what to do. So I just put a little grommet in the corner and suspended it in midair so that it could kind of slump and move and it made all the difference to the piece and I thought that was a really good lesson for me of I have an idea about something that and sometimes my ideas are too rigid and if I just sit back and and let the piece tell me what to do then it then it out it comes yeah that's wonderful and I think that's a wonderful place to close we already talked about kind of what you're working on next so um good luck with that I look forward to seeing the work in your upcoming solo show. And thanks so much for coming on Paper Talk. Oh, thanks so much, Helen. I it was so fun. It was such a fun conversation. Um, and, and I'm, you know, thank you so much for everything you, that you do for paper lovers all over the world. You're, you're an amazing resource. Oh, thank you. And I will mention that this is episode 99 and the next one is episode 100. I've got a little surprise for everybody. So stay tuned. Hey, paper friends. Did you know that I write a weekly blog called The Sunday Paper featuring stories of people doing exciting, innovative, and beautiful things with paper? Sign up at HelenHebertStudio.com slash blog. I'm also creating a lot of content over here and the best way to stay up to date is to join my newsletter list to learn about free tutorials, online classes, workshops, and the annual Redcliffe Paper Retreat, which takes place right here at Helen Hebert Studio. You can sign up at HelenHebertStudio.com to receive my e-newsletter. This wraps up our episode, and if you enjoyed it, I'd appreciate it if you could leave a review over on iTunes. This helps other people find out about the podcast. Special thanks to Gary A. Hansen for the sound editing and Peter Thomas for the music. Visit HelenHebertStudio.com and click on Paper Talk, where you can find out more about them, subscribe to the series via iTunes, and listen to other episodes and access all of the archived shows. I'll talk to you soon. The reason, the size of season, the